This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Best bits from Friday, November the 11th. Coming up, we'll hear more from COP27 as it comes to, or certainly the first week of events comes to a conclusion over in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, our team, including Brandy and Shruti, have been live down there at COP27, talking to delegates, talking to uh, attendees, exhibitors and more, and finding out more about some of the big topics being discussed uh, at COP27. Talking of COP, uh, one of the individuals we caught up was Farid Al-Awlaki from TACA. We wanted to know why TACA are in Sharm el-Sheikh and why they're at COP27. Emirates reporting some eye-watering record numbers overnight, uh, numbers they must be very, very proud of. Uh, getting back to some semblance of normality, certainly some semblance of profitability. Nick Humphrey was kind enough to join us live on the line. He's actually over in Australia, but joined us live on Microsoft Teams to talk through those numbers and also look ahead to the future of aviation. And uh, in studio, Georgia and myself talked all things robots. Report coming out uh, from Amazon uh, that the robotization, if that's even a word, uh, of the industry and certainly uh, of that company is something that might be sooner rather than later. Prompted a question about robots and whether androids or robots will be taking over more jobs than we expect in the near future. They're just a few of the talking points that were discussed right here on the Business Breakfast. Uh, This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, let's turn our attention to some of the big talkers today. Uh, Tech has been very much to the fore over the course of the last few days. It's been a big talker, not just throughout this week, but in recent weeks as well. Tech stocks uh, suffering, despite that, the Nasdaq, of course, uh, seeing significant gains overnight because of uh, the aforementioned uh, headwinds that we've been talking about. That will come as great solace to tech investors who've been a little bit worried. Uh, George has been looking in more detail at some of the tech stories, including Amazon. Yes, I have. Uh, Amazon's come out and done a fascinating interview all about how they use uh, robots. Uh, Apparently, uh, they're going to be ramping up the use of their robots as their sales growth slows. And of course, it's facing pressures now uh, to cut costs. Uh, Already three quarters of the packages delivered by the e-commerce giant are touched by some kind of robotic system. But they think that that is going to hit 100% in the next three years. Now, if you think about how many people Amazon employs at the moment just to uh, seek out the various packages, you know, the various items that they're selling from their massive warehouses and then packaging it up, you get a sense of just how many jobs we could see lost if these robots do indeed become sophisticated enough that basically they can go out, select the item you want, package it up, send it into the post and you never need to see a single human. Uh, The firm, however, is declining at present to say how much the investments are costing them, you know, because obviously you have to buy the robots, develop the robots. Uh, So I imagine there's going to be a little bit of a balancing act there because at the moment, potentially humans could still be cheaper if the robots are costing a fortune to develop. The, the human the human is still in, in use, I suppose. Slightly depressing thought, though. Yeah, but part and parcel of the sort of the trend at the moment, isn't it? Was that uh, one of the most popular websites at the moment is is the brilliantly named um, is a robot going to steal my job dot com or something like that, isn't it? And it sort of rates where you stand in the pecking order of whether your career choice is something that is something that will be robotized 
if that's This is horrifying. I'm sure we're on the list high up. Yeah. Can they replace this almost instantly? I'm pretty sure you can program uh, a, a robot to present a radio show in a morning. It's fairly formulaic, isn't it? No. It is an extraordinary alchemy of, of teamwork and innovation and intrigue. Robotic elements would not play a part in it in any way at all. Moving on to the next story <laughs> this morning. And other headlines that we wake up to this morning. Obviously, all things IPOs doing the rounds at the moment. Uh, we got news from Talim overnight, the Dubai school operator, Talim Holdings. Uh, they've set the price range of their shares as part of the uh, uh, IPO, uh, seeking to raise 750 million dirhams. Um, they're looking to reinvest. We spoke to Alan Williamson, in fact. Uh, Alan, uh, Alan is the uh, chief executive of Talim. He was kind enough to come into the studio and answer a few of our questions uh, last week. Um, he uh, was very frank about what they wanted to do with money. They want to open new schools. Uh, they want to reinvest. They want to expand their portfolio. Uh, and it's obviously struck a chord with investors out there. The company has set the price range between 2.95 and 3 dirhams per share, implying a market capitalization of between 2.96 billion and around about 3 billion dirhams at the time of listing. The company is selling up to 254.2 million shares, which is a quarter percent stake of the business as a whole, 5% reserved for the Emirates Investment Authority. IPO subscription period starts today in round about, what, uh, an hour and a quarter's time. Uh, and we'll close on November 16th, retail investors and eligible employees and parents uh, will be included. Subscriptions expect to close November the 17th for professional, professional investors. So 10% uh, of its offering to retail investors, 88% to professional investors, and the remaining 2% to eligible employees and parents. Final offer price will be announced November the 18th. Shares of the company expect to start trading on the DFM on November the 29th. A lot of people said, you know, was to leave big enough to go to IPO? Certainly uh, looking at the uh, price per share there and the price range that they've gone for or certainly have been offered would suggest that there is huge demand. I mean, I don't know if your child or children go to a, a Talim school, but regardless, is that something you'd be interested in, given the amount we pay on school fees here, uh, to have a, a vested interest, a financial interest in your school? Do you know, I was thinking about it, because if 2% is going to staff and parents, I, I have a policy of not investing in a single company. I, I, like, I like the balance. I like the ETF scenario, the sort of sausages in the packet, rather than investing in just one item. So it would go against my sort of normal investment plans to just invest in one company. Plus, there's a lot of competition here, right? Like, you know, there's, there's it, the market is growing very quickly, but that's because the country is expanding very quickly. But then the country has also been known to contract quite quickly as well because it's an expat population. So I don't know. It's, it's a difficult one. I, I think personally, no, because I tend to choose the sausages rather than the individual meat item. Vegan sausages are available. Yeah. Uh, Saudi Arabia's, uh, one more for you very quickly before we go to the road. Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund is selling an additional 10% stake in the kingdom's stock exchange. Uh, that means they're pushing ahead with their plans to reduce their holdings in some of the country's biggest companies. PIF offering 12 million shares in the Saudi Tadawal Group holding, according to a statement from the PIF 
overnight. So uh, big news coming out of Saudi Arabia there with the selling of $670 million worth stake in Saudi Stock Exchange. Uh, looking to sell a 10% stake in Tadwal. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You're listening to the Business Breakfast, and we've seen record first half year profits for Emirates. Uh, we're joined live now from Australia by Nick Humphrey, a partner at law firm Norton and White. Nick currently leads Norton White aviation transport and trade practice in the Middle East. Nick, how are you doing? What are you doing in Oz? Oh, just hanging out, having some nice weather. Um, you know, sitting with my aircraft models today, as you can see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you fly Emirates to get there? I bet you did. <laughs> yeah, yes, I did. I, I actually, my, my trip out, I experienced the premium economy product for the first time, and I was actually very happy and impressed with that. Ooh, um, a little bit on the pricey side, but, you know, um, and that's what we can get into on these numbers. Yes. Yeah, let's do that. Because, of course, uh, Emirates uh, swung from a loss of 5.7 billion dirhams to a profit of $4.2 billion. Is that just the passenger traffic coming back or is there more to it? Well, it's, it's, it is extraordinary. And, um, you know, I've nerdishly gone back because, you know, look, we can compare the figures for the six months from last year, but they're not really comparable figures. So I've gone back to 2019. And 2019, this, at the six-month mark um, of September, revenue was more or less the same as it is this year. However, they were operating more aircraft, they had more staff, um, there was more passengers. Um, so what, what's the story here is people are paying a lot more for pri- for, for their tickets. Um, and that's the story. So, and, and, you know, there are a lot of gripes out there, but the reality is um, there still is a lot of what we call pent-up demand. Um, and the surprising point is, you know, people's elasticity of demand is, is quite, you know, it's, it's quite elastic. People are willing to pay more their seats and that's that's really the big story because you look across the other parts of the emirates business um look travel has has drastically improved the travel uh, uh, portion of the donata business but you know ground handling and, and catering is m- you know more or less the same um and and they i know they're under a lot of cost constraints as well so passenger side people are paying more and less people have been travelling. Okay, so hang on a sec. The cost of flights have gone up. Whenever I get on a plane <clears> at the moment, it's packed. I mean, I went to London about a month ago, and in both directions, there wasn't a spare seat. Where is Emirates when it comes to capacity? It still hasn't come back to the capacity that it was. Um, and, you know, look, I can, you know, I guess my experience with the Australian market, at one point in Sydney, they were flying five flights a day. At the moment, it's still two. Um, Heathrow, I think at its peak, was flying seven flights a day. So there still is the constraints and there's, you know, if you, if, if, you know, you have a look at any of the job advertisements that are, you know, Emirates is trying to heavily recruit pilots and cabin crew. They're doing recruiting all around the world. So they're still trying to be, bring back the capacity. So it still is less capacity than it was three years ago, but revenue is at the same level, which is extraordinary. Okay, so so how has uh, Emirates managed not to be so affected by the pilot shortages that we're seeing everywhere else? It does feel like Emirates has managed to get back up to speed. I mean, not completely up to speed, as you say there, but but you know, improved its its situation more than other airlines, for example. 
Oh, look, I, I guess I couldn't personally speak to the, the recruiting um, approaches that Emirates has, but it still is a very desirable employer. Um, I think the UAE is an example that its economy has opened up a lot earlier than a lot of others. Um, and you see the struggles that Asian carriers are having, and particularly, you know, carriers in Hong Kong and China. Um, and a lot of pilots and, and expats from those markets have moved to the Middle East because, because of those simple facts. And, and Emirates will always be able to um, be an enticeable um, prospect for people who've been flying the narrow broadies, be it the A320s or the 737s and go into the 777s or the A380s. So, so the, I think, you know, on that respect, um, you know, it is always going to be a desirable employer. OK, so it's upped its headcount by 10% in the first half of this year. What do they need to go forward? Is it just pilots or is it logistical staff, stewardesses? Well, it's, it, it, it's I guess, operationally, it's across the board. And, you know, there were some numbers given to me on an occasion of bringing back an aircraft that had been, let's call it mothballed, um, into service and the amount of maintenance time and work that was required on that, the amount of people just to bring an aircraft back in. So it's it's operationally, and I know all service departments are hiring at Emirates. Um, so, you know, it's it's still a, you know, a, a long, long way to go. But I think there's, you know, Emirates, like a lot of other businesses, have learnt that, you know, having a bit of leanness is really good for the balance sheet. And I'm sure they won't go to the, um, the same back office levels as they did in the past. Okay, uh, just looking ahead, uh, their outlook, uh, they've suggested that they're expecting strong demand in in the second uh, half of the year, but they're also expecting headwinds. What is your forecast? Well, I guess they they will have their forward-looking view based on the bookings and the cash they're already sitting on for those forward-looking views. Um, You know, uh, you know, p- taking the lawyer hat on and putting an economist hat on, I think we're all going to be feeling a pinch point. Um, and one of the elements, and it doesn't reflect in these numbers, but, um, you know, when they do the end of financial year numbers, you get a bit more granular detail of the cost. But fuel costs are still a real struggle. And if it's accounting for, you know, fuel costs have doubled, more or less, and that there's got to be a pinch point somewhere. Um, and I think, you know, you're going to have, there's going to be a bit more competition as some of the Asian carriers do ramp up again. And they have those hub competitions with Emirates. I mean, that that's when things will shift a little bit. And hopefully we will see some, um, you know, some easier pricing on our pockets. So just 30 seconds to go. Uh, we've got inflationary pressures, obviously, on the costs for the airline, but also on passengers who might not be willing to pay those huge fares that we're seeing at the moment. Do you think that could uh, could bring a bit of a dip going forward? That, that, that will be a challenge and it'll be interesting to see whether Emirates really focuses on the US market where it gets some really positive currency arbitrage benefits as, to, as selling in US seats in US dollars as distinct from Europe. Um, you know, it, it's going to affect everything. And, you know, you, you speak to people in some of the service department, you know, for example, on the Donata side, cost of catering is going up significantly um, and they're trying to find competitive ways to keep their airline customers happy. So it is, it's going to continue to be the challenge. You know, I'm always the uh, the pessimist, so yeah, tough times ahead. Interesting to hear you mention the FX uh, there. Really fascinating. Uh, Nick Humphrey, partner at law firm Norton White, speaking on the Business Breakfast. Thanks for your time. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, the COP27 global climate change meeting continues apace in Sharm el-Sheikh and the statistics emerging from the United Nations aren't getting any more reassuring. A report issued in the last hour suggests that emissions of CO2 are rising so quickly there's now a 50% chance the world will cross a crucial climate change threshold soon. 
soon and emissions for 2022 are uh, expected to remain at record levels, lifted in part by people flying again after COVID-19. Now, among the UAE's uh, prominent companies at COP were TACA, the Abu Dhabi Energy and Water Company, with more than a dozen power generation and water desalination plants across the UAE. They are a major player. Brandy Scott, of course, has been reporting uh, from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. And she asked TACA's executive director of generation, uh, Farid Awlaki, why they need to be at COP. Uh, about a really uh, interesting event. Um, I think for, uh, for TACA as a utility business, um, we play a very important role in the current um, initiatives towards uh, net zero and climate change, uh, industry and um, you know, power uh, in utilities, businesses contribute something like 60% of the world's emissions. So I think we have an important role to play. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, obviously this is a meeting of uh, governments and policy makers. So they also play a very important role in deciding you know, what the, the way forward towards uh, tackling things from a government perspective and incentives. So it also helps us, you know, map up, map out our route towards contributing to net zero. The U- Taqa is uh, one of the top te- uh, companies in, in the UAE. Uh, we're, uh, we're one of the top companies in ADX, listed companies in ADX. We're one of the top 10 uh, utility companies in Europe, Middle East and Africa. So we're pretty much central, you know, to, to the topic and to the, to the sectors. So. Uh, um, and, and what we're doing here in COP is actually demonstrating our commitment as well next to the UAE as a government uh, towards you know, the tackling the, the, the topic of climate change and uh, net zero. Well, let's look at your commitments. Uh, you're looking to have renewable energy as 30% of your portfolio by 2030. Where are you now on that? Uh, very good question. I'm very proud to say, I mean, once this Muzzler deal is closed, we will actually be already hitting and exceeding our targets that we've set out for ourselves about a year ago. So, so we're already ahead of our targets, but we don't stop there. So now that just means we set new targets. Um, and uh, ov- overall, we've just released our ESG strategy. Um, we've uh, already produced our second sustainability report. We've committed to reducing our emissions by 20, 25% to our 2019 baseline and this is this means you know we're working based on absolute emissions we're not trying to greenwash we're not trying to work with you know statistical numbers we're talking about absolute numbers so these are absolute um, uh, reduction in emissions that we are targeting by 2030 and of that 25% we are a global company so it's 25% of our global and actually it means 33% of our UAE business specifically which is actually where the majority of our of our fleet uh, is. So, so these are ambitious targets, but we are determined to, to deliver on them. How will you cut those emissions or how are you cutting those emissions? There's a, a mix. There's, a, you know, there's more than one way to, to solve this problem. There isn't an absolute way uh, to solve them. So we're tackling it from different perspectives. Um, one directly through reduction of emissions from our power generation fleet and water production fleet. So we're using better technologies for gas fire, which is actually the transition fuel today of the future. Um, we were building Fujera F3, which is the, the most efficient and largest power plant of its kind in the region. We're also building PV2 Al Dafra, so that's the large, going to be the largest power, PV power plant in the world at the lowest cost. So we're actually contributing even to reducing the costs, not just producing novel projects. But we're also adapting more reverse osmosis technology in our water desal. So what that, that's actually, that technology is six times more efficient than the current desalination technologies we're using today in the region, which therefore you know, means that a huge reduction in emissions in, in, for providing this very important resource, you know, which is water. 
um, in the region. But we're not stopping there. We're also working with our customers to see how we can also help them decarbonize. So we're looking at ourselves and not just as, as an energy provider, but maybe a decarbonization solution provider because we're quite close to the topic of energy. So we're working with Adnoc, for example. We're providing them uh, high voltage subsea lines to their offshore operations, which will reduce their emissions by 30% because they have to shut down their captive plants off, uh, offshore and use the more efficient plants that we have in the grid. Um, and that high voltage power line is going to be the first of its kind in the region. So we're leading in that, in that respect. We're also working with EGA and Emirates Steel. Industry is, uh, provide, uh, I think, contributes something like 25% of the world's emissions, heavy industry specifically. So aluminium, EGA is one of the world's largest aluminium smelters. We're working with them to carve out their captive power assets, bring them into the grid, and help provide them with more green energy so they can produce green aluminium. So they're going to be one of the world's largest and first producers of green aluminium. They're branding it under Celestal. So that's great news for them and great news for the sector. And as well, we're working with Emirates Steel to help them decarbonize through introducing green hydrogen, which is used, because they use hydrogen at the moment to produce some of their raw materials. So we're going to help su su supplement that green hydrogen, the gray hydrogen, with green hydrogen and help them produce green steel effectively. And that makes them also one of the region's uh, first green steel pr producers and helps reduce the emissions from some of these big industrial players. Which is interesting, because now you're talking about scope three emissions, which traditionally yeah. are the hardest yes. for a company to manage. Is this something that you're going to be continuing to do? That's correct, because I mean, I think John Kerry was saying that, you know, we've achieved something like 60, 70 percent. It's actually that last 30 percent, which is what you're talking about, is going to be the real difficult thing. And this is what we're doing, you know, in, indirectly, by just by being collaborative and innovative and I think this has been the theme of COP27 that we're going to have to collaborate and innovate really to solve that last 30%. So we're being proactive about it and not just trying to solve the problems within our sector but also working with other with our customers and other sectors to help them as well uh, help uh, reaching their emission targets. So what will you be listening for here at COP? Coming out from the, the sessions, the world leaders sessions, what kind of commitments and, and time frames? I think, I mean, we all know that, you know, everybody's going to have a role to play. So governments also have an important role to play. We're doing it as a commercial, you know, uh, private player. But we're also looking at governments to help set the policies, the frameworks, the incentives, right, that will help accelerate a lot of these things and make, because at the end of the day, we, we, we also have to try and to operate. Uh, we have, we have, to, we represent shareholders. Uh, we have to demonstrate shareholder value. So we have to be also looking at how to, to deliver on these targets commercially. So governments help also through their policies, through incentives and frameworks to give us the roadmap, you know, or the framework to work with to be able to deliver these things commercially. So we're very keen to see what comes out of this uh, COP27. Farid Lucky there, uh, the executive director of Generation at TACA, uh, speaking live at COP27. More from COP throughout the show. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Forget Beverly Hills Cop. It's all about Sharm el-Sheikh Cop. The UA Pavilion was a hub of activity during COP27. Uh, we hear now from some of the entities who are talking about what they are trying to highlight at the Climate Summit and how the UA is planning to reach their net zero target. Let's start, if we may, with Dr. Radea Al-Hashmi. She's the Managing Director for the Government Accelerator Centre, part of uh, the Prime Minister's office here. As climate change and the move to net zero are the big talking points at COP27, we began by asking her how can government and the Government Accelerator help with the UA's targets of 2050? 
Because of our unique methodology of really bringing together different stakeholders, we worked with the different government at uh, UAE. Uh, we worked, uh, we brought uh, different, more than 140 different entities from private sector, from government. They worked over the course of 60 days. Uh, they brought in all the different initiatives, and in the end, after the 60 days, we got a net zero uh, roadmap, climate roadmap 2050. What kind of initiatives and programs did that include? Uh, it had different sectors. So we, uh, there were a lot of list of initiatives on energy sector, on transport sector, uh, environment, uh, biodiversity. So there were different uh, multi-sectorial, but it's, it was really mapping out how can the government reach a net zero by 2050. And how does this tie in with the whole of society approach that I know the accelerators are trying to promote? So in our methodology, we, when we run a, a cohort, we always bring different stakeholders from the society, from the private sector. Sometimes we bring a student, sometimes we bring a doctor on the table to discuss with us the challenge that they are facing. Sometimes they have great ideas that we never thought about. So we bring that one also on the table. So we hear from His Excellency Mohammed Al-Khamadi, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation, or ENEC. Nuclear energy is a zero emission clean energy source. So we asked His Excellency, why is it so important for you to be here? So today being here at the COP27, uh, it's a great opportunity to showcase what the UAE, UAE has succeeded in, in improving our uh, emissions and also producing clean electricity and reliable electricity from the nuclear power plants at Baraka. And this has put the UAE in the forefront when it comes to having a cleaner emissions and a cleaner electricity that we uh, we have in the UAE. If I could add one more point also that the UAE today is being the leader in the Middle East to be able to operate nuclear power plants uh, for the civilian purposes of making electricity. And uh, we are the first in the Arab world to operate uh, the power plants uh, and, and be able to operate them and maintain them for the next six years that the UAE will benefit from those power plants. Now, one of the innovations here in the UAE that we marvel over is the Rain Enhancement Programme. The UAE Research Programme for Rain Enhancement Science announced a new cycle of research to further improve the technology. The programme is set to launch its fifth cycle on the sidelines of the 6th International Rain Enhancement Forum, 24th of January next year down in Abu Dhabi. Alia Al-Mazrui, Director of the Programme on Rain Enhancement Science for the NCM, the Met Office here in the UAE, explained why the Rain Enhancement Programme is so important. The Rain Enhancement field is very important, especially in this um, period of time. As you know, uh, with the climate change uh, challenges, with the water security challenges, uh, it's very important for, uh, for us here to, to address this, uh, to, to address these challenges through uh, rainfall enhancement research and innovation. It's very important to push the boundaries of research and science and technologies and this. Uh, it has shown through studies that it's a cost-effective uh, technique. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a viable one. And, uh, and comparing with other uh, techniques such as desalinations and others, it's a really uh, environmentally friendly and a cost-effective one that can really uh, contribute to the water security issue, issue um, effectively. So we continue the conversation by asking, what are you hoping it will ultimately achieve? So far, and during our fourth, fourth past four cycles, 
um, $18 million has, was the fund on the research uh, through 11 innovative projects. And um, we, are, we are still and we are still committed and we have a very long term strategy in this uh, in terms of the research, in terms of uh, our commitment to push this more. And the very important point here is to position the UAE here as a global hub for rainfall enhancement in weather modification field. Uh, um, a global hub here in terms of uh, the science and technology and finding state-of-the-art art techniques here. We're very uh, keen to, to, uh, to uh, support scientists and uh, um, weather modification experts uh, to, to gather and uh, to come up with solutions uh, and sustainable solutions in this field. Finally, UAE-based Blue Forest, world-leading mangrove conservation restoration project developer in the partnership with the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, held a talk about mangroves and why they're essential in our fight against climate change. Vahid Fatuhi of Blue Forest explained about mangrove diplomacy. Look, we all know that climate change is a global problem, and the only way we're going to resolve it is through by working collaboratively. Mangrove diplomacy is the UAE's initiative to forge partnerships through mangroves to fight climate change together. And finally, we hear now from Ibrahim Zabi, the senior VP, Climate and Sustainability of the ADNOC Group. He explained the calls to continue producing oil as the world will need it. I believe we've all heard about that there is not a button, magic button you switch, you get everything. So energy, affordable energy security, low carbon, affordable energy security is a main thing on everything, on every table in the whole world. So it, it, it takes time to invest, operate and produce to ensure that the, the affordable low carbon energy goes to all the customers across the world. Uh, the, we should invest to ensure that people have access to energy, to start with. And by the way, you talked about SDGs. One of the SDGs is access to energy, regardless of that energy. We have four, we've heard in the whole COP about the four billion people that they need access to energy. So investment should be done there. We should have done that actually a couple of years ago to ensure again the operations of producing energy to mass masses around the world is there. But having said that, with the geopolitically what's going on in the world, we, ident we recognize that we should have done that earlier. So we need to invest more in infrastructure while at the, and at the same time, but in parallel, we invest as well in renewables, we invest in nuclear, we invest in hydrogen, all goes hand in hand. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.